Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Take your Bibles and meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1163 in that Bible. We are coming to the end. Next week will be our last week of our series on spiritual warfare that we've called The Good Fight, exploring different aspects of what spiritual warfare is and talking about who Jesus is, who Satan is. We've talked about angels and demons. We've talked about uh, tactics of the enemy. We're talking about different aspects of this area, and we have been trying to just kind of bring it down to earth, something that can be kind of mystical and mysterious uh, and, and unknowable, and we're trying to, to know it by looking to what the Bible does tell us and try to bring some clarity to this whole thing. And so we've covered a fair number of topics, and if you've missed any messages, you can catch up with these online. They are on our podcast and on our website, so you can catch up with us there. In the American Civil War, we've talked about this already once in this series as an example, America went to war with itself. There was a division between the northern states and the southern states, and the division was over slavery as a primary area, but also some issues just with tensions and regional tensions and states' rights and different things. And so the southern states said, we don't want to be part of America anymore, and they began to form their own country that they called the Confederate States of America. And war begins to happen, where the, the rebels are trying trying to break away and form their own nation. The northern states are trying to keep it all together. And the northern states, from the beginning, were more than likely going to win because they had a lot more money. They had a lot more population. Their army was almost twice as big as the southern army. Uh, they had alliances with powerful nations that could help them fight the war. And so from the beginning, the north was in pretty good shape. And the north was uh, where Abraham Lincoln was the president. And Abraham Lincoln put a general in charge of all of the affairs named George McClellan. And this is a real picture of them from around 1860. And Lincoln is on the left and McClellan is on the right. And McClellan was a proven soldier. He was a brave man. He was a good man. Uh, but he, was, he had never led a whole army before. And he was very, very cautious. He didn't like to fight unless all of the things were, all of his ducks were perfectly in a row. The conditions were just right, which is not a bad thing necessarily. But in war, that doesn't always happen. You can't always have it uh, in perfect conditions all the time. And so when the, the war began, uh, where the North should have been easy victors. Everyone thought it would be over in a few months. It ended up dragging on for four years, and it was very long. It was very bloody. And one of Lincoln's frustrations as the president, when they would get together and make their battle plan, he would say to McClellan, you're bigger, you're stronger, take the fight to them and just win. You have the power, you have the ability. But McClellan was really cautious. And so what would happen is they would fight a battle, and the southern states would lose, they would retreat, and Lincoln would say, go, pursue them. Like, let's fight again. Let's, let's just destroy them. Let's break their morale. Let's win the war. And McClellan would say, well, let's just wait. I'll get some more reinforcements. We'll make our plans. I don't want to do anything. And, and then the South got a chance to kind of regroup. And as they could regroup, they would fight again. And again, the North would win, and the South would retreat. And Lincoln would say, go, pursue them. Let's finish this off. They're on the run. They're scared. Let's end the war. 
And McClellan would say, well, we'll just wait till the conditions are just right and we'll get all of our ducks in a row and we'll make sure uh, that everything goes really well. And so the Southern Army would lose, but it kept getting chances to retreat and regroup. And so they were never able to finish it off from the beginning. And so Lincoln got increasingly annoyed with this and was constantly pushing McClellan to be more aggressive and, and understand the power that you have and the numbers that you have and the, the firepower on your side. Let's go and finish the job so we can end the war and be one country again. And McClellan was always just kind of hemming and hawing. So one day after one of those such moments, Lincoln sends him a telegram. And in 1860, it's more of a polite society. So we word things very gently uh, and everything. And so what Lincoln says to McClellan is, if you don't want to use the army, I should like to borrow it for a while. Yours respectfully, A. Lincoln. Which sounds somewhat polite, but in 1860, that's like, whoa, burn on McClellan. Lincoln has nailed him as a coward and McClellan eventually gets fired and Lincoln puts Ulysses S. Grant in charge who is much more aggressive and the war begins to progress much faster after that. And so I tell you that story because today's sermon is called Taking the Offensive and we want to have an attitude of spiritual warfare. We've been talking about this through the series where we're not scared of the devil. We're not scared of the demons. We are alert. We are aware. We have our eyes open to what he is up to but we also don't want to just be sitting around and just waiting for where the enemy might be at work or where the enemy might be afflicting us because we are the bigger, stronger army in this fight. Those who are for us are greater than those who are against us. It's not a, an even match between Jesus and Satan. That's not even close to a fair contest. Jesus is greater. And so we are the greater army, and we don't want to just be sitting around waiting for the enemy to be up to something. We actually want to take the fight to him. We want to push the darkness back. And that is how we have defined spiritual warfare in this series, as we are pushing the enemy back in our lives. So today we're going to talk about some of the ways in which we can do that. We have been touching on it throughout the series but that'll be our focus today. So let's take a look at our text together. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We are starting in verse 1. And in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is uh, defending himself throughout the book because there are other leaders who have come into the Corinthian church uh, and they get the nickname the Super Apostles. And they were always bragging about themselves and how powerful they were and how great they were. And they were always tearing Paul down. And so Paul is defending himself in this letter from these Super Apostles. So that's important to know as we read our text today. 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, Paul writes... By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. So that's obviously something that his critics have leveled at him. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, the super apostles, who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete." 
So there's a little of Paul defending himself in there. There are people who are saying, I'm really timid in person, but bold when I'm away. But I'm going to be bold when I come to you guys next because there are things being said that are not good. And at the same time, Paul flips it. And he has said this elsewhere, like in Ephesians 6 last week, where in Ephesians 6 we read that. And it says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Right? Our fight is not here. Our fight is in prayer. Our fight is in worship. Our fight is in the spiritual realm. Our fight is against the enemy. And so by all means, get mad in this fight, but just make sure you get mad in the right place. And so Paul has said that already. Here he is saying the same thing again, which is we're not fighting the way the world fights. We're not fighting on those grounds. We have different weapons. We have divine weapons. The weapons of our warfare look differently, and they are able to tear the strongholds of the enemy down. So where there are lies in our lives, these weapons can bring the lie down. Where there is division, where there is discouragement, where there are just different ways that the enemy is afflicting, the weapons of our warfare come against those things. And so it would be good to know what some of those things are. And so where we're going today is not an exhaustive list of the weapons of God. Some of these weapons we have touched on already in this series. But just to get a sense of what are some of these things. Because if God says you have weapons that can push the enemy back, I think it's good for us to know what those are. Because if we don't know what they are, how are we ever going to use them? So we'll go through some of those today. The first one is scripture. And we've talked about that for the last couple of weeks. In Ephesians 6, as our sermon uh, last week says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is what the Bible says our sword is. The Bible is like a sword to us. And you remember Jesus, when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, when the devil came against him with temptation and tried to get him to fall into pride and tried to get him to fall into disobedience, Jesus' response was, it is written. And he brought the word of God against the temptation of the enemy. And as he brought the word of God against the temptation of the enemy, the temptation came to an end. So if even Jesus treated scripture like a sword against the enemy, we are not better than him. And so if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we should engage in warfare in the same way. By knowing the Bible, by praying the words of the Bible, by speaking the words of the Bible against the enemy and against our circumstances. Where there are lies, the truth comes. And where there is... uh, things that we have misunderstood about God, the clarity of God's word comes and brings us into a better place. And sometimes I think the reason we might feel beat up by Satan a little bit is because we're not giving scripture a place in our lives. All the studies say that Christians are are fairly anemic when it comes to how much time we give to the Bible. Ten minutes or less is the average. And so if we are in this war, which the Bible says we are, if we are in this conflict and the Bible tells us that this is true, we have challenged you, where does scripture fit in? Where does truth fit in as a priority in your life? Because I think we probably don't stand a chance if we're not going to take up the sword that Scripture tells us to take up. And so we want to be aware of all of these things. In World War I, there was a battle. It was a part of a bigger battle called the Battle of the Somme. It was a small version of that. The Battle of Fleur-Courcelette. I don't speak French, but something like that. And this was a battle in World War I, which was a bit of a, a weird war because... Uh, For a couple of hundred years before this, the way wars worked was you had two big groups of guys with their guns and you would march them onto a battlefield and basically you would blast away at each other until one side gave up. And so in World War I, when it broke out in in 1914, 
they were holding on to some of that mentality because that was how war with guns had worked for a long time. But the thing was, technology had advanced a lot. Machine guns had been invented since the last major war. Uh, huge artillery guns that could fire shells that did unbelievable damage had been invented since the last war. So it didn't quite work in the same way. And so they didn't quite know how to fight each other. So they just dug these trenches on the battlefield. And they had, they had these battles that would last for months and years. And you would just dig into the trenches and basically both sides would just take turns kind of charging at the other side, trying to dislodge them from the trenches. And so you're charging across this muddy, slippery field full of shell holes, and all the while there's people with machine guns mowing you down, and it, it was just horrifically bloody. Uh, 20 million people killed in four years in Europe in this conflict. And so the other part of it was it was just kind of a stalemate because you both have guns, you both have trenches, the field is muddy, it's hard to get across, and there's no really easy way uh, for either side to get an advantage. But in this battle, uh, the British had an advantage that the Germans didn't have. And if you were in a German trench that day, it must have been terrifying only because you had never seen anything like this before. You're in your trench, you're waiting for the attack to come, and then these huge, loud metal things that had never been seen before start lumbering across the field towards you. The British had invented the first tanks. And the tanks have no problem getting across a muddy field, and the tanks are bulletproof, so your guns don't work on them, and the tanks have big cannons on them so they can shoot at you even as they get closer and closer to you. So the Germans saw a bunch of these things coming across, they couldn't do anything to stop them, and so they ran, understandably. They retreated, they lost the battle. There was such a game changer that day, and then the Germans figured out how to do it, and things evened out a little bit more. But it was just, that fight was just not a fair fight. If you're just a soldier with a rifle, how do you stand up against a tank? It's just not a fair fight. You're going to lose that fight every time. And that is what happens when the people of God pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's not a fair fight for the enemy. The, the end is already decided when we start to do that. And I think that's one reason why he will do everything he can to keep us out of our Bibles. Because if we don't know the truth, we're not going to find freedom. If we're not picking up our sword, then we're not picking up our weapon. And so anything he can to keep us busy or distracted or just, just caught off guard enough that we don't have good times in the word, that we're, we're thinking about other things all the way through it, and we need to buckle down and make this a priority in our lives. The author of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Not just words on a page, not just a book that helps us understand God. It is that, but it is infused with the power of God because when God speaks, things happen. From the very beginning in creation, how does God create? He speaks. Let there be, and there was. And this theme throughout scripture that when God says something, things happen. And God has given us his word for us to know him and for us to speak it, for us to share it, for us to pick it up and pray it against our circumstances, pray it against the devil, to pick it up as the sword that it is and to take that seriously. Our first weapon is scripture. Our second weapon is prayer. And Jesus, or James, sorry, says in James 5:16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If we're not praying, we're not fighting. And if we are not fighting, then the enemy has free reign in our lives. So we need to be praying. And it's another reason why I think Satan does everything he can to stop us from praying. Because it's easier for me to just worry about something. I don't even think about praying it because I'm just caught up in my thoughts. And, and it's easy to get busy with life. And it's easy to, to pray and feel like, oh, I didn't really accomplish anything. Why should I keep doing that? And so there are a lot of tactics and tools that try to keep us out of this place. But the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Satan knows that scripture, even if you don't. 
And we learned last week that you are righteous if you are a follower of Jesus, not because you've earned anything, but because he has given his righteousness to you. You are righteous because he has gifted you with his righteousness. If you are a follower of Jesus, your prayers are powerful and effective. This picture that uh, we heard from Derek Parento when he was here, I really like that. Um, Because when we call upon prayer, we are calling upon God's power. We are calling for the enemy to be pushed back. We are praying against his plans. We are praying against the demons. We are praying for God to give us strength. And and that's where the power comes from. And when Derek Parento was here, he talked about Hacksaw Ridge. And Derek is one of our missionaries. And he's in northern Ontario. He ministers with First Nations people. And and Derek, one of the things I love about him is he's very authentic. He's very transparent. and, And he will just say things like, you know what? There are times, there are days, even a lot of days where I have no idea what to do. I'm heading into situations that are are so far beyond uh, anything with First Nations. There are are major spiritual factors at play. There's generational stuff. There's uh, there's ways in which they've been wronged. There's injustice and all sorts of stuff. And Derek is trying to navigate all of this. But Derek used this picture last time he was here. And he said, there's a scene in the movie Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which takes place in World War II as America is fighting Japan. And the Japanese were at the top of the ridge. And so there was a beach and there was a big cliff. And so the Americans had to scale the cliff before they could engage the enemy. And so there is this big netting thing that you see here in this picture. And yet the Japanese, if they're up there on the ridge, they can obviously just sit there and wait for the heads to start poking up and they can just take their enemy out. Uh, So they need to do something so that the Americans can at least get to the top of the ridge so you can fight. So just off the beach, they had the big battleships that came. And the battleships had these big guns and they would fire at the top of the ridge and their shells would hit the top of the ridge and it would just push the Japanese back enough so that the Americans could get up and get established and could actually have a chance in the battle. And when Derek was here, he said, I'm the guy climbing the cliff and Meadowbrook, you guys are the big guns when you are praying for my ministry. He says, I can actually feel the difference from when Meadowbrook started praying for me. And we pray here at the church. We have a lunchtime prayer time on Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. And on Tuesdays, we pray for our missionaries specifically. We just, we take the time to pray just for them because they're out there doing things that none of us are doing. And we want to be supportive in every way, including through prayer. And so the missionaries get prayed for. And Wilf, who is on our missions committee, will go to them every week and say, you know, tell me what we can pray for today. And so we have a list and we pray through it. And Wilf said to me in the last month or two, it is remarkable when you have a list like this, because you're able to go, oh wow, God answered that, and God answered that, and God answered that. You have a record of the faithfulness of God and how he has answered those prayers. But Derek said, Meadowbrook, when you pray for me, this is what you are doing, because I'm heading into places where there's a lot of demonic activity, and there's a lot of spiritual things that, uh, honestly, I don't always understand all the time, but when you pray for me, you are pushing the enemy back with your prayers so that I can get established to do what God has called me to do. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And we keep coming back to this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 57 throughout the series. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has won it, and Jesus shares that victory with us. The end of this thing is not in debate at all. The battle is already won. We are just living out the remaining part of the battle before the victory gets fully realized. 
And so knowing that, we pray with confidence, and knowing that our prayers are powerful and effective, and not every prayer we pray necessarily gets answered exactly in the way I would like or the time I would like, and, and I don't always understand why that's the case, but even as we wrestle with that, where we sometimes say, well, I prayed for that, and it didn't happen the way I wanted, the solution to wrestling with that problem is not to stop praying. I can promise you that. Because although not every prayer might get answered exactly the way I want, I can guarantee 100% of the prayers you don't pray will not get answered. We want to be people of prayer because the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are that righteous person. Your prayers are the big guns. And so we want to keep that in mind and take that seriously. We've talked in the series about worship as our warfare. And... Uh, where worship actually becomes something when we come together and we sing. It doesn't have to be here, but, but whenever we lift up the name of the Lord, whenever we sing his praises, whenever we take those steps, we are engaging in warfare. We are pushing the enemy back. The psalmist said that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. God dwells in our worship. When we worship, God is there in that moment to receive our worship. And God's presence comes in a real and tangible way. And whenever God shows up, the the enemy has to go. Whenever God is there, <coughs> the enemy gets pushed back. And so the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. <coughs> Excuse me. And as we sing truth, and, and so many of our, of our uh, worship songs here, I mean, pretty much every line, you can find a scriptural truth that it connects with. And so we are singing God's truth. We are singing the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we are doing that not just for ourselves, but for one another. Because when I sing over you and you sing over me, we are encouraged in our faith together. And it's not that we can't do this on our own. We can do that too. But there is something about the coming together. Scripture says, don't give up meeting together, as some people have started doing. Make sure you come together, because we encourage one another in our faith. We sing and declare truth together. God's presence shows up. The enemy gets pushed back. Scripture also says that we trade the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. When we are feeling discouraged and when we are feeling down, uh, that praise can come and actually push that off. And I have had these experiences in my lifetime, and I hope you have as well, where, you know, you're having a bad day. You don't want to come to church, maybe, or you don't feel like worshiping. But as you push through that, and as you say, you know what, I'm going to worship even though I don't feel like it, and I'm going to worship because Jesus is just worthy of my worship, and it's not about how I feel. I'm commanded to worship, so I'm going to fulfill that out of obedience, if nothing else. And as we do that, and as the presence of God comes, that there can be a shift in that heaviness that we feel. There can be a shift in the discouragement. I walk into church feeling frustrated. I leave feeling stirred up and full of faith and full of hope. That there is a, a, as the praise of God comes out of our lips, the spirit of heaviness can get traded. And so in that sense, it is our warfare as well. Every time we worship, we are engaging in warfare. The psalmist also said in Psalm 34, 3, magnify the Lord. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Magnify means to make bigger. And, and God is, is big, obviously, without us. But in our hearts and in our minds, we make him bigger. And as he gets bigger, other things get smaller. The old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, right? 
Look full in his wonderful face, for the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we fix our eyes on him, when we take our eyes off of ourself, when we take our eyes off of our struggles, our, tri our trials, our circumstances, when we look to him and we give him the attention, we give him the worship he deserves, he becomes bigger. And as he becomes bigger, everything else becomes smaller in a good way. And that is warfare, where we exalt him. So worship becomes a part of our warfare. It's an important one. And, and Holly Gerst says, it's an act of war against the enemy of our hearts. Sometimes when I'm sick, when I'm discouraged, and I'm frustrated, when the enemy is at work, I will worship just to tick the enemy off, which is admittedly not the best reason to worship. But sometimes I just feel like, you know what? If you're going to be active in my life, I'm going to make you miserable every minute that you're here, because I know you hate the sound of my worship. I know you hate Jesus being magnified. I know you hate it when you have tried to discourage me, but I fight through that to praise him anyway. I know that that is warfare when that is happening. I know the enemy gets pushed back, and so we want worship to be one of our tools that we use in the fight. Scripture also talks about resistance as being one of our weapons. Resist the devil and he will flee. Resistance pushes the enemy back, James 4, 7. And sometimes in warfare, it's more like a siege. We just have to outweigh the other side. Temptation comes against me. I need to resist until the temptation lifts. Sometimes an urge overcomes. I want these angry words to come out of my mouth because I've just been hurt myself, but I'm going to bite my tongue. I'm going to resist the urge to do that until that, that desire leaves. And if we don't give in to the enemy in those moments, then we don't give him any we don't open the door for him to do anything to us. We talked a bit about that last week. So resistance becomes an important weapon. Every time we resist, every moment we don't give in, we are engaging in warfare in that moment. And it doesn't say resist and he'll leave instantly, but we will wait him out. We will starve him out. We will wait and we will pray and we will take our stand against him. And yet as well, that's not all that this verse says. We sometimes jump right to this part, just resist the devil and he will flee, but there's a part before that, Scripture says, and I would show it to you. There we go. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So that first part's actually really important. It's not just resist the devil. It's submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and then when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And so when I talk about submitting to God, what we are meaning is that we are saying, I'm going to do my best to live God's way, understanding that nobody does it perfectly, that we all stumble and struggle in many ways, but I'm going to live by God's word to the best of my understanding. I'm going to follow the Lord's leading day by day as I understand it. I'm going to choose the loving way. I'm going to choose the generous way. I'm going to choose the Christ-like way, even though that's not always the easier way, but I'm going to choose the way of righteousness. I'm going to submit myself to God's ways and then ask as I do that, resistance is going to become a whole lot easier because I'm going to be living and walking in the power of God and the power of the Spirit as I do that. So it's not just resist. It's submit yourself to God and resist, and the devil will flee from you. When Hitler was rising to power, World War I had ended uh, 20 million dead, as we mentioned, in four years. And Hitler rose up in kind of the vacuum after World War I ended. Germany had gotten whooped in the war. And one of the things that they had said to Germany was, uh, here's all the conditions that you have to live by now since you lost the war. One of them was you can't have a big army because last time you had a big army, we had a big war. And so Hitler began to float that and he began to build a huge army. And the world said, stop, you need to stop that. We signed a treaty, you need to hold to that. 
And Hitler said, what are you going to do about it? And everyone said, ah, we just finished a war. We don't want another one. So they didn't do anything. And so as Hitler's army grew and his confidence grew, he said, oh, here's a territory in another country that I think should be German. I'm going to take that over. And he invaded and took over the territory. And the world went, hey, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be doing any of this. And Hitler said, what are you going to do about it? And the world said, nothing. We really don't want another war. And then again, Hitler said, here's another territory that I think should be German. He invaded it. He took it over. The world went nuts. There was a conference. They got together to talk about it. And they said to Hitler, you shouldn't be doing that. And he said, what are you going to do? And the world said, uh, nothing. We don't want another war. And so they said, Hitler, we will let you do everything you're doing, but you got to promise, don't take over any more territory. And Hitler said, I won't. And then Hitler set his eyes on Poland, and he invaded Poland, and then the world said, okay, now we actually have to do something. But the problem now was Hitler's army had all this experience, and the army had all this momentum, and they had all this confidence, and they had all this drive, and very quickly Poland falls, and then Hitler sets its sight on France, and France falls. Hitler makes a pact with Russia, and they get together, and very quickly the Nazis have taken over almost all of mainland Europe, and, and the rest of the world was just reeling. And they lost battle after battle, and, and it was just, oh, wow, this guy's actually going to take over the world. And historians, you know, for the 60 or 70 years since then have looked back and said, man, what if someone had resisted the first time something happened? What if someone had resisted when the army was just getting a little bit too big? If they had stepped in then, then maybe the whole war would have been avoided. But, but they let him have his way there. And then when he took his first territory, they let him have it. And when he took the next one, they let him have it. And, and on and on until eventually he took over all of Europe. And it ties into this idea that scripture talks about in Ephesians 4.27. that says, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't let him get his foot in the door. Because every inch you give to him is an inch you have to take back. And it was much harder to dislodge Hitler from Europe once he had taken over the whole thing than if they had jumped in at the beginning and nipped it in the bud. And sometimes what happens with the enemy in our lives is stuff gets stirred up in a marriage and, and we don't deal with it. And a year becomes two years, becomes five years, becomes 10 years, becomes 20 years. And then we're stuck with these marital problems that we've never dealt with. And it's not that they can't be dealt with. They absolutely can. Jesus heals difficult marriages all the time. But it's a lot harder to deal with 20 years in than if we had dealt with some of this stuff in year one. If we get sin into our lives, you've, there's a pattern, a cycle that happens with sin where you do something once that you shouldn't do and we feel guilty. We say, oh my goodness, I can't believe I did that. Lord, I'm sorry. And then if we fall into it again, we'll feel guilty, but it'll be a little less guilty. And then if we fall into it again, it can feel a little less. And we, it goes on and on and on. And eventually, sin stops feeling like sin. And we come up with justifications and excuses. And, and we, we just become okay with it as a factor in our lives. And, and there is nothing of the enemy that cannot be dislodged, absolutely. But it just gets a bit harder when we've given the devil a foothold, when we've let him have his way in our marriage or in our sin life or in our thought life or in whatever we are doing. It just becomes harder. And so the call of Scripture is, yeah, do your best to just not let him even get his foot in the door. Because it's a lot easier to push him back one foot than it is to push him back a mile once he's already gotten his way in. It's still absolutely doable. But the, the idea behind the Scripture is resist him when it starts. Fight when it starts. And don't let him get his foot in the door. And if he does have his foot in the door, we're still going to fight. And we are still going to win. But it's just we want to switch our mindset so that we're dealing with him at the beginning and not at the end. 
Another weapon we are told about is our testimony. Scripture says that the saints overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is something about the spoken word that is necessary to us, that we have all come to Jesus, those of us who follow Jesus, because someone spoke it, someone shared it with us, whether it was our parents or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or whoever, that, that we heard the message and we responded. Hearing the message causes our faith to grow. And there is something as we share our testimony that is so powerful in this, because when you tell me the story, of how God answered a prayer in your life, that actually makes me want to pray more. When you share a story of God's faithfulness to you, my trust in his faithfulness gets bigger. When you share the story of something cool you found in the Bible, in your Bible time, that makes me want to jump into the scriptures more and more. There is power in this testimony. And as we share the gospel, one of the easiest ways to share the gospel is just to tell your story. Because you're an expert in your own story. You might not be an expert in scripture or theology, but you know your own life and what happened there. You know how God has been active in your life. You know how you came to Jesus. You know how you prayed for that thing and God answered that prayer. You're an expert in your own life. And someone who doesn't believe in any of this might not believe in the God that we talk about, but they can't argue with you on your own life. It's amazing just to tell your story. And as you tell your story, you inspire other people. And as I tell you my story, I can be an inspiration to you. And we share this together. And as we all grow in our faith and in our hope and our belief in prayer and in our trust in the scriptures, as we do that, the enemy gets pushed back. Because the Bible says the people in the end times, they overcame the devil by the word of their testimony. As they told the story of what Jesus has done, that was one of the ways that they pushed the enemy back in their lives. In the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II, Russia and Germany were allies, and then Germany stabbed them in the back, and so they went to war with each other. And the Battle of Stalingrad happened over many months, and there was a city of about a million people, and they fought for the city and in the city, and it was just like in this picture. It's just building by building and street by street, uh, and a million people died in this one battle. It was just horrifically bloody and just a stalemate. Neither side could dislodge the other side, and so they would just kind of fight back and forth for the streets and the buildings, and, and not a lot happened for many months. And then the Russians finished another battle somewhere else, and they said, okay, that army is now going to come come into Stalingrad and relieve you guys, and we are going to bring lots of supplies and tanks and, and airplanes and everything. And just the power of that story lifted the morale of the army enough that they got their fighting spirit back. They went after the enemy. And for the Germans, who also heard that story, it just crushed and defeated them to the point where they just ran. And the Russians were finally able to turn the tide and win the battle. There is something about sharing the story that is good for the heart and good for the soul. It stirs up our faith it stirs up our hope, it stirs up our love, and it makes the enemy tremble because every time I tell you the story of how God answered one of my prayers, it is the testimony of how the enemy is defeated and going to be defeated, and it's the story of the faithfulness of our God. There's power when we tell the story. And so you have one. And, and whether you're new to Jesus or whether you've walked for a long time, you have a story, and it's an important one. And, and our job is to tell that story and the stories of where God has been at work in our lives. Last one, the blood of Jesus. We mentioned the scripture already. Talking about Christians at the end times when Satan is at his, uh, at his zenith of trying to take over the world. It says that those saints overcame Satan by the blood 
blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. So the testimony part we have already talked about, but they overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb. And that's just a, a bit of a poetic way of saying by his victory that he has already won. Because he shed his blood as he died for us and as he rose from the grave. We talked about it in week one. Uh, and we keep coming back to the scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, that because Jesus has won the victory over Satan already, the next step is he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He shares his victory with us. He has done the worst part. He has done all the hard work at the cross and in the resurrection. He has triumphed over the powers and principalities. He has triumphed over the enemy and now he stands in victory and shares his victory with us whatever you are struggling with right now the end has already been determined you win the victory is won already and we are now living out and enforcing the rest of that victory here on earth but the end is not in doubt at all Jesus has won, and we always, always, always want to come back to that, because even as we engage in warfare, we are aware uh, that things happen and that things can be difficult and overwhelming. Warfare is not always easy. It is not always fast, but the victory has been assured already. It may be a process until we see it fully realized in our specific situation, but the victory is won already, and so we want to always have that as the foundation in spiritual warfare. We don't fight to get to a place of victory, we have a victory already. And now we are living that out. Come on out, worship team. Just a couple more things and then we're done. If you have any questions about the message today, we have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca, and we'd be happy to chat with you. Uh, if you have comments or questions, we can keep the conversation going on some of these heavier topics. So we talked about some of our weapons today. These are not the only weapons of our warfare. These are some of the big ones. These are some of the main ones that scripture talks about. And so as we take up our Bibles, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as we pray as we should, as we worship as we should, as we resist in all areas of our lives, as we tell our story, as we lean and depend on the blood of Jesus, the victory that he's already won, these are amazing things that we have on our side. But we've also talked about in this series, there's lots of ways that we push the darkness back. And what we want is for our eyes to be open so that we are looking everywhere in our lives for where we can push the darkness back. Someone said to me in the last week, I was in a situation where there was uh, some gossip and slander going on. And it can be really tempting to jump into the gossip when the gossip is happening. I think that's pretty universal. And yet he just said, I was thinking about pushing back. And so I chose to speak positive things in that moment instead of participating in the gossip and the slander. That's warfare. It can be just that simple. You are choosing the godly way to push the enemy back. You are not going to jump in to the enemy's ways. You are going to push back. So kind words to someone who's frustrated. Encouraging words to someone who is discouraged. That's warfare. We've talked about a hug for someone who just needs a hug that day because they're feeling broken. That can be an act of warfare. If, you're, if your marriage is struggling with division, then asking your wife out on a date can be an act of warfare. Anywhere where there is darkness at work, where there is division, where there is deception, anywhere that we speak truth, that we speak love, that we do the loving thing, that we take the Christ-like step, that is warfare because we are pushing the enemy back everywhere. So by all means, these are the big ones. But beyond these ones, start to look at your life and say, all right, where can I start to do good? Right? A financial gift when there's a need is an act of warfare. Turning off the TV sometimes can be an act of warfare. Putting the phone down can be an act of warfare. Spending time with your kids 
can be an act of warfare. Anywhere we choose the good way, the Christ-like way, the loving way, is a weapon in our, in our spiritual warfare. There's a story I heard a number of years ago, and I'll close with this. And it was a woman who was a witch. She had been a witch uh, before she came to Jesus, like an actual witch, not a pointy hat caricature. Like she was a Satan-worshipping witch. And so part of what she did was they were very involved in, uh, you know, calling upon demons and spells and, and all of those things. And, and we take those seriously. The Bible says those things can happen. And so, uh, so she's not making this stuff up. And she said, as she came to Jesus, she got delivered out of all of that and then got healed and restored and cleansed and uh, just an awesome story of redemption. She made a transfer, as scripture tells us. We've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. She lived that out in a very profound way. And as she was sharing her story, one of the things she said, this was maybe 20 years ago, but it's just, it's seared in my heart. She said, if Christians had any idea the authority and power that they had, they would never doubt. They would never stop praying. They would never be afraid. Because she said, there were times where we would be in a, you know, a satanic mass and we would be calling upon demons and, and doing our spells. And there would be demons actually in the room, manifesting in the room. And she said, then all of a sudden, just all the spiritual activity would go dead and, and everything would leave and it would just all shut down. It's like, like the power would go off almost. And she said, we would look out the door and there'd be a couple people walking by the building and they'd go, ah, oh, Christians. Just Christians walking by the building. She didn't say they were walking around, you know, seven times and praying in tongues. Like just walking by the building was enough for the demons to flee. She used to say, we would walk down the street and because we were very in tune with the spiritual realm, we could tell you which houses were the Christian houses. We could say that Christians live there, Christians live there, Christians live there because we could just see in the spirit. They just glowed in a way that we stayed away from. We were scared of the people who lived in those houses. She said, if Christians had any idea where the Bible says, greater is he who is in you than Satan who is in the world, she said, you guys have no idea how real that is. And if you understood the authority and the power that's on your side, you would never stop praying and you would never worry about anything. And so these are the weapons we are given. And, and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We are not alone in any of this stuff. And our heart for this series, church, is that we would all wake up to this stuff. That we would actually actively pick up our sword and, and pray and, and engage with the enemy and push him back and make the choices that are warfare that we've been talking about so that the kingdom of God would advance more and more and more in our lives. So one of the weapons we've talked about throughout this series is worship, where we invite the presence of God, we proclaim the truth, and the enemy flees. And so we're going to do that before we go. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, as we get ready? Father, thank you for how your word is the sword that challenges us, it sharpens us, it convicts us, and it encourages us, it builds us up. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you just open our eyes wide in our lives to what this means for us and where uh, in our life we can take a step, we can make a choice, we can speak a word, we can pray, we can worship, whatever that looks like to push the enemy back in our lives. Thank you that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, that we are not alone. It is not our power, Lord. It is your 
your power at work in us that pushes the enemy back. So let him flee, Lord, in every area, in marriages, in our kids, in our bodies, in our minds, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our homes, in our churches. Let the enemy flee and tremble as we magnify Jesus above everything in life. And as we glorify you, Lord, and as you are lifted up, let your power be shown in us and through us as we enforce the victory that you have won as we rise up into warfare as your word calls us to. We thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like prayer, come on forward. Otherwise, we'll see you next Sunday.